Sarcoma Insight. Sarcoma Insight, this is our destination for education for both benign and malignant tumors. Everyone, welcome to today's episode. Today we'll be discussing Ewing sarcomas. We have a wonderful guest with us. Before we go any further, we do like to touch on our previous episode and maybe a little catch up um, with our event since the last episode, um, which was liposarcomas with Dr. Peter Ferguson. You know, we touched on these, the different classifications of the fatty tumors, as well as uh, the different ways to manage and treat them and the outcomes. Since our last episode, I did, uh, at least you you were not able to make it, but I did get a chance to go down to the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery meeting, which was in Chicago. Pretty exciting. Get to interact with other orthopedic surgeons, orthopedic oncologists. Yes, I would have loved to be able to join. I think I was able to go every year of residency and uh, haven't been able to get back since uh, because of the pandemic and then uh, was on call during Academy this year. So unfortunately, I was unable to join. But I feel like you were doing something important like working. I'm sure I'm sure it was a, a really uh, enjoyable time. And from what I saw in emails and from uh, friends who were there, it sounds like it was a really great meeting. So yeah. glad that things are getting somewhat back to normal on that. You know, down here in the south, southeast, you know, we've been hit with tornadoes. Yeah, uh, it's definitely spring in Seattle. The cherry blossoms are in bloom, so it's looking really beautiful around. And the, the weather is getting nice and uh, looking forward to the summer coming up. There's signs of it everywhere. So speaking of Seattle, speaking of Seattle yes. All right. Yeah. There you go. Look, we are in sync. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but yeah, you go ahead. <laughs> uh, yes. So speaking of Seattle, uh, I'm very excited that our guest today is one of my partners, Dr. Antoinette Lindbergh, who is a pediatric orthopedic oncologist at Seattle Children's Hospital. Uh, she's an assistant professor there and she is a Seattle native. Uh, she's dual fellowship trained in musculoskeletal oncology and pediatric orthopedics. Uh, she did her residency in USC and went to Columbia for medical school. We're very excited to have her with us today to talk about Ewing sarcoma. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Lindbergh. Thanks for inviting me. Well, happy to have you. We're back to one of our usual formats as we were for the last episode as well, where we focus on a particular diagnosis and go through uh, a series of questions just to help uh, our listeners understand this diagnosis a little bit more and uh, hear some valuable insight from an expert uh, when we have the opportunity to have a guest on the show. So thank you for joining us for that discussion. And so just to keep it simple and uh, start with what this is, uh, can you tell us a little bit more just in kind of simple terms of what what is Ewing sarcoma? So it's probably the, it's the second most common type of malignant tumor that can start from bone. And it's a little unusual in that it's named after somebody instead of named after where it is. It's kind of like, it's, we typically just kind of describe it as like a tumor made of little, small, round blue cells. And it has a very specific mutation, which is kind of how they're able to identify it. But um, it tend, it's not very common when, when you look at, you know, different types of cancers overall, but, um, it's a pretty common thing that we take care of when we do orthopedic oncology. 
so it's mostly in the bone, but it can happen in the soft tissues and it can also expand from the bone quite a bit uh, to make some pretty big tumors. Yeah, it was interesting for me kind of trying to read up a little bit more on some of the history of the naming of, of this type of sarcoma. As you mentioned, it is a little bit unusual compared to other sarcomas that we take care of uh, in that it does have an eponym uh, of sorts. But yeah, this is definitely one of those, the small round blue, blue cell family of tumors um, and can show up in a lot of different places. Uh, and it seems like the, the origin or cell of origin is still a little bit up for debate that has some characteristics that are along the line of being a neuroectodermal tumor, um, but the exact cell of origin is still uh, somewhat poorly understood at this point. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much what most people understand. It's just, we don't understand as much where it comes from, but know a lot more about it um, on how to take care of it now than we used to. Right. And it's, and it sounds like when it does occur, um, it causes some problems before we get into some of the problems it causes. Um, would you be able to share with us? And we, you know, we talked about this prior earlier because you do specifically take care of younger individuals, um, but who is more likely to have a diagnosis or present with Ewing sarcoma? Yeah, there's a pretty wide range of ages for people who get this. Um, even though I work at a children's hospital, like my youngest patient I've had with this is 18 months old. And the oldest I have right now is 30 years old. Um, but typically it's more of a kind of tweens to teens to young adult kind of range is, is where it's most commonly clustered. So you don't, you don't see very many people in their middle age with this and even though there'll be a few one-offs of very, very young patients, they tend to be a little bit older kids. Um, I think like there's, there's some other weird patterns about it, such as um, there's a little bit more in boys and it's usually very uncommon among African American population to the point where I've been like, we always kind of second guess whether that's really the diagnosis, if it's the first one thrown out. Yeah, interesting. Um, and it's always really helpful to know what the typical characteristics of a patient are, because that's part of what comes into play when we're trying to figure out the diagnosis for these patients. So always helpful to keep in mind the usual demographic that we see. Um, and sort of on the same lines of figuring out when and where this tumor occurs, what locations would you say you most commonly see Ewing sarcoma in or would, would this diagnosis most commonly occur in? Um, tends to happen in the long bones. Um, and so we'll see it a lot in things like the, the femur, the humerus, um, but you can also see it in the pelvis, um, but pretty much any bone, but just more commonly in, in a lot of the long bones. Yeah. And then in the when it comes to the soft tissues, it seems like it can really happen in any location and even at times have a very impressive presentation and say when it's in a mediastinal location, so in the chest cavity or in a retroperitoneal location, which is at the back of the, the abdomen for some of our listeners who may not have heard that term before. But yeah, the soft tissue presentation of this when it's outside of the bone, I've found to be uh, quite dramatic when I've when I've seen this, but yeah, absolutely. And Great. Anything to add, Izu? 
Um, just media Stino. I don't think our our group has heard uh, media Stino yet. So that's a really uh, sort of a short way to understand that is is within the chest or you know behind the sternum. Great. And um, we we've talked a lot about different types of uh, bone sarcomas or other types of sarcomas on. Uh, this show already, and this probably won't be too different in that respect, but what are some of the types of symptoms that you typically see in patients or how do they present when you see them in your office for the first time? Well, most of them are, you know, younger folks and they come in with pain, but it's really common for them to have had the pain for quite a while before they finally come to the doctor's office, um, especially since a lot of these are active kids and it's just, you know, written off initially as aches and pains from playing sports and stuff like that, because that's more common. And it's usually a, it, it becomes an issue because their pain doesn't go away and it just gets progressively worse to the point where they finally, you know, go get seen or finally get an x-ray done. Um, I've my unusual example, though, is I have a patient who was diagnosed with her Ewing sarcoma after getting a pedicure. She was getting her calf massaged and the tech noticed that there was a mass in her calf. And so it's not always pain that starts off that um, level of symptoms. Um, There are definitely people who come because finally there's actually a you know, since this can have a huge soft tissue mass with it, they finally come in because there's just this big lump somewhere um, that someone finally catches. And then they finally kind of put two and two together. Oh, actually, I have some pain around that area too. Um, But sometimes we miss it for a while. Also, I've had a patient where we thought she had an infection for a while, but she turned out to have a Ewing sarcoma. And another patient who we thought had all sorts of sports um, hip injuries because she just had this nagging pain, but even her initial x-rays didn't look abnormal at all. But usually people sooner or later get an x-ray or an MRI that finds the tumor. Sounds like a prolonged pain that uh, can be unremitting, um, masses of swelling, and, and it could also mimic other, other things, which makes it difficult to get that diagnosis immediately. Um, and, and, you know, and also that it's good to get a pedicure is what it sounds like. I'm sure that patient was very grateful that she got a pedicure and that that was pointed out to her during her appointment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then you touched on this just a bit briefly when you said an X-ray or MRI. And so imaging, when it comes to making these diagnoses, I'm sure it plays a big role. And so um, we just want you to you know go over what your imaging studies that you would obtain just for our listeners uh, when you have a patient that has these symptoms and has the right is the, is of the right age sounds like there's definitely an x-ray which is what we always say is a place to start um and then an mri might be following is what i'm guessing yeah i mean a lot of the tumors ewings will actually kind of destroy the bone so for a lot of our patients on the x-ray, you'll know something's wrong because there's just some areas of bone that are missing. Um, Sometimes there's some other signs of bone that's growing a little abnormally, trying to adjust to having a a big tumor there. Um, So we always start with that because that's easy to get and a good starting point. But I think, you know, when we see something abnormal, we have to get the MRI to kind of get a better sense because, 
you know, that's even though it's a tumor that starts from bone, you don't see it very well on x-ray. So you really need an MRI to see the extent of it. And I would say it's also really important that even if you have what looks like a normal x-ray, but you have these symptoms that just don't go away and you can't explain for some other reason or just seems out of proportion to what what the you see on the x-ray and it's really important to get that mri just to kind of look a little harder because i definitely have a good handful of patients where either their x-rays were read by someone elsewhere and they didn't notice anything wrong and i even have my own patients where i go back now and look at their x-rays and can't for the life of me find something wrong even when i go back and look at it now yeah it can be interesting how wide the spectrum of uh imaging that you can get in terms of what it looks like for patients with the same diagnosis just depending on how aggressive it is or how um how involved it is with the bone but i think that's a great point that this is one of the diagnoses in particular where it can either have a completely destroyed bone on x-ray alone or uh it can be very subtle and look like a fairly normal x-ray at least that initial um initial scanning of it and then that mri really shows the true nature of what's going on and then after you get that imaging and that's more looking for what the local extent of the tumor is what are some of the things that you would get at that point in order to see if this has spread to any other sites yeah the most common places that ewing sarcoma can go to are the lungs and then other bones so the tests we get for that initial staging or when we go looking for you know what's the state of the cancer at the beginning of treatment uh, will also include the tests that look for that so for the lungs people will get a ct scan of their chest um, and then um, depending on different institutions uh, people will get either a pet scan or a bone scan and both of those are just different ways of looking for areas of bony abnormality that can be the um you know different sites of where the tumor is spread to other bones in the skeleton yeah and um just to clarify for our listeners so those last two tests you mentioned the bone scan and the pet scan i believe we may have mentioned before but those are types of nuclear medicine scans where there's a radioisotope involved and the increased activity is an area of brightness that can show um, an area where it's spread to in either the bones or on a PET scan, you get a little more information in the soft tissues as well, potentially for sites of disease. So great. And sorry, Easy, what were you going to say? Yeah, I was just going to um, emphasize a point, you know, when we're getting that MRI of a lesion like this, you want to get an MRI of the entire bone that's affected um, because Ewing can metastasize uh, to bone as well. And so that's something we have to be cognizant of. Yeah, all of us have examples of where, like, you know, someone got an x ray of just their knee somewhere else, and you can see the tumor, and then you end up getting an MRI of the entire femur, and you find another spot of the tumor up closer to the hip. Uh, along the lines of other tests that uh, I think are commonly obtained for patients with Ewing sarcoma. I think this one's a little bit unique in that we talk about getting a bone marrow biopsy for these patients as well, again, to look for spread of disease uh, to the bone marrow. That's something else to keep in mind for this diagnosis, that 
really sets it apart from some of the others that we that we talk about. And then after that, of course, we always talk about the importance of getting a tissue diagnosis. And so usually biopsy is the next step. And uh, what are your pathologists uh, or what does your team over at Children's typically tell you when you have a patient who has a diagnosis of Ewing sarcoma? Are there any special characteristics that they uh, communicate with that biopsy? If I think that it's going to be a Ewing's, I am sometimes a little too enthusiastic when I answer the phone, when they call into the operating room and I just ask like, are there little round blue cells in there? And, um, (laughs) and that's pretty much the main characteristic. They find these little small round blue cells. They are super active and they just don't look quite right. They're just growing. You can, you can see signs that they're growing rapidly on that. And it's pretty it's pretty diagnostic. Like they do some other tests afterwards that confirm the diagnosis, but usually between like what we suspect and then seeing the small round blue cells, it's a pretty good tell that we're, that's the track we're on. And often the translocation that we had talked about, which is the uh, 11 to 22 translocation will be seen uh, in these uh, round blue cells and it'll be on the uh, PCR or the fish, the PCR, everyone is now familiar with because we all need it to travel abroad um, okay. and <laughs> for COVID. And then the fish uh, is the, the inside to fluorescent, inside to hybridization, which we've talked about in previous episodes. I might be telling my age here, but the way I always remember which chromosomes are translocated for this tumor is it's Patrick Ewing, when he played for the Knicks, he was number 33, and the chromosomes involved are 11 and 22, which add up to 33, which is about as complicated a math as I can handle. Um, But once someone taught that to me, I couldn't forget it, but I've learned that it's hard to teach that to the residents now because most of them are just too young to remember Patrick Ewing playing basketball. Yeah, it's unfortunate to think about that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, Frederick Ewing uh, never won a championship, and uh, there are no famous uh, number thirty threes right now. So, yeah, that's that's coming from a New Yorker right there. So, <laughs> um, but yes, definitely a useful tip to keep in mind, especially for any trainees we have that may be listening. So great. So we've had this patient; they have the, these symptoms. We got we have the imaging, and we did the biopsy. Um, so you, you mentioned you were in the operating room waiting. So, so you're doing these biopsies often as an open biopsy. Correct. Okay. So that means we make an incision and take out a little piece rather than just using like a CT scan or something to get at the needle, a small needle piece. Right. And we had, we had talked about these on previous episodes, sort of the, the different biopsy techniques, uh, and the benefits, you know, when you do an open biopsy, you definitely can get more tissue. Uh, in the process as well to to help confirm your diagnosis. So once we've obtained this biopsy, we have a diagnosis. What usually is the next step for 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 these patients? So we we every almost every episode we talk about a tumor board. So I'm guessing this is cases discussed in the tumor board, and then um, the next steps in terms of systemic therapy for these patients or treatment plan. Yeah, the. The question I always get from parents is like, oh, okay, so you guys going to take out the tumor now? And every time I have to explain like, no, actually, this is a 
it's kind of counterintuitive, but we always um, start the patients on chemotherapy first. So it's, um, there's a really high chance that even if all the tests we do beforehand don't show any signs of the cancer spreading to other places, there might be microscopic cells of it throughout the body. And so a really important part of, of being able to treat Ewing sarcoma is to be able to get rid of all those cells throughout the body. So we actually start patients on 10 weeks of chemotherapy before we even think about what we're going to do with the tumor itself. So the chemotherapy is pretty standard for everybody, no matter where their Ewing sarcoma is, whether they have stuff in their lungs and their um, other bones. So we always start with that. And then, like you were saying, we talk about it in our tumor boards because um, in addition to chemotherapy, you have to do something to treat the tumor where it is. And there are actually different options and what's right for one patient may not be right for another person or another tumor. Yeah, definitely. And having a, an individualized approach to each patient, I think is really important in what the benefit of a tumor board is in tumor board discussion. So uh, I think that's great. And we try to emphasize the importance of that uh, in each episode as well. So good for our, our listeners to hear the importance of that from uh, one of our guest experts as well. So we appreciate yeah. that. A question that we get often from our listeners uh, through comments uh, or on our uh, Instagram page is if you're checking for necrosis uh, is the first one uh, and the benefits of that in the post after the tumor has been removed. And then the second question would be just really to just um, summarize this. And when you're doing your definitive treatment for these patients, we're doing a resection, we often aim for a margin negative resection. Yeah, those are both super important. I would say that the if I had to pick one over the other, I would say having the negative margins the most important one. Um, but one of the nice things about chemotherapy before surgery and Ewing sarcoma is that sometimes you have that huge soft tissue mass, so it expands beyond the bone quite a bit. And if you were to try to operate on that right away, it might be really close to a lot of other important structures, but a lot of times that soft tissue component will actually shrink a lot and it'll actually make the surgery more doable or give you a better chance of actually getting around the whole tumor to remove it all. So we want negative margins, meaning the whole tumor comes out with a layer of normal tissue surrounding it. So people always ask me, what does the tumor look like? And I have to tell them that, well, if I did my surgery right, I never saw it. Um, yep. so we want that, that like the more space we have, the better, although depending on where the tumor's next to, we can't always get that. So some negative margin is important. Um, and then we also want to see that necrosis rate. Cause it's kind of like a report card for the chemotherapy. If, you know, most like more than 90% of the tumor looks dead on the fine when they finally go through the tumor and look at it that tells us that the chemotherapy was really effective against that tumor so it's probably having that same effect to any other of those cancer cells anywhere else in the body that we can't see and measure but you know margins are like 
the most important, like one of my previous colleagues and I wanted to go make buttons to put on our shirts that said margins matter. And, um, but you know, like that's, I think the most important thing that we can do as surgeons is make sure not just that we actually get those negative margins when we do the surgery, but make sure we take advantage of everything else we can do that will help us get those margins, like the chemotherapy ahead of time to shrink the tumor or, you know, picking the surgery that's going to give us the most likely chance of getting those margins. Or, you know, in some cases, if you, if it's just going to be impossible to get that margin, then really considering what other treatments we can do. Um, the advantage of Ewing's is that you, for what we call local control surgery, where we are local control, where we take care of the tumor itself, you can do surgery, you can do radiation, or you can do a combination. And there's not a right answer for any given thing. It's really depends on the situation. That's great. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm glad that you kind of spoke about it in the way that we, we as orthopedic surgeons try to speak about it as well. But uh, mentioning that this is local control, and that there are often different options for that. And in this case, both surgery and radiation can be uh, can play a role in that either separately or together. So um, those are the important components of local control of the tumor. And then that systemic therapy or chemotherapy is really what's important for treating those cells that we can't see that may be in other places and spread to other sites. So all of them are, are incredibly important in taking care of uh, this type of diagnosis. That's great. And I am definitely going to borrow your analogy of using uh, the report card, uh, the level of necrosis as a report card for the chemotherapy. And uh, I might use that for my uh, patients with soft tissue sarcomas and speaking about necrosis in that setting as well. But um, well, excellent. Easy. any other thoughts or questions on that note? After we've removed the tumor, you know, looked, evaluated margins, necrosis rate, done all the chemotherapy beforehand, what happens after the surgery? There, um, first, an, an, off another round of chemo or not? And then is there any surveillance uh, after the treatment? So my patients are usually then going to go right back into chemotherapy and do another 20 weeks of chemotherapy while they're also recovering from either their surgery or their radiation. And so it's a really long haul for treatment for these patients, um, often like 10 months or more. So it's pretty disruptive uh, for families. But once we hit that mark where we call, we call it end of therapy, where they finish that last bit of chemotherapy, then we need to keep watching for it because even if you have negative margins, even if you have a completely dead tumor and everything looks good, uh, it can come back uh, either at the same place where it was or in another site like the lungs or another bone. So we have to watch people very closely and kind of the magic number is we watch them for five years. Um, early on, we'll see them every three months. We'll get you know, MRIs or x-rays and CT scans of their chest. Um, and then we'll space it apart a little bit more uh, by the time we hit the five-year mark. Um, at my hospital, they'll stop doing scans to look for tumor, but they actually will keep following up with the patients because these are usually kids and young 
adults who then have to live the rest of their lives with the long-term effects of their treatment, whether that's what happened from their surgery or even just chemotherapy, they have to have their heart monitored for the rest of their life. Um, and then from, from an orthopedic standpoint, depending on what we did for their surgery, if they have some of these people have big artificial joint replacements or, um, you know, some other reconstruction that needs to get watched over time to make sure it continues to heal and function well. So we have to follow those things, even if all the cancer follow-up has been um, good. Yeah. And I appreciate you giving all those details because I think that we've spoken about surveillance on past episodes, but haven't done a really good job of explaining what exactly we're looking for at all of those appointments in particular, besides just recurrence and uh, metastasis. But I think especially with this being a diagnosis that we see in young patients in particular, thinking about those long-term effects of the treatments we do is definitely a really important reason why we want to keep following our patients in the long-term. So um, that's really important to keep in mind. And I think kind of goes into something that a lot of cancer centers and hospitals that take care of patients with sarcomas are trying to incorporate more and more um, is the idea of a survivorship clinic is that once patients have gotten past their treatment of the disease, um, not only do we want to follow them for recurrence or metastasis, but making sure that they can continue to thrive and have good quality of life once they are survivors of of cancer. Any thoughts on that, Izu? I think we, I think we, we touched on that. That was pretty thorough. Um, probably want to finish by talking a bit about survival. And really, um, I think one thing that we always like to touch on for a lot of our patients definitely is that, you know, despite what the numbers say, you know, if you, it's, it's either yes or, or no for, for many patients. Um, but we do like to go over what the actual numbers are for them. And so for patients, um, what do you usually tell them in terms of anticipated survival? If they're coming to you with localized disease uh, or metastatic disease uh, or, you know, based on different stage at, at the time of their diagnosis. So one of the nice things about taking care of children and younger patients is that they tend to do very well. So if you come in with a Ewing sarcoma that's only in one location, I can t- I can look at these parents and kids and tell them that statistically speaking, their odds of surviving past five years is really high. It's like 70% and higher, which is, you know, compared to a lot of adult cancer statistics, that's really good. Um, If they do have disease in either like some other bones or have it in their lungs, it's definitely worse. We start looking down closer to like 30% range of being able to survive past that five years. And then if you start out with the disease in one main spot plus bones plus lungs, then it really drops even below that to probably maybe around 15% uh, give or take. So it's definitely better if you only have one sided disease to start with. Um, but I still try to stay very optimistic, even for our patients um, who do present with metastatic disease, because somebody has to be that 15% or smaller. Like my oncology team likes to say somebody has to be under the curve. So I definitely have patients that have, you know, survived long-term after, you know, recurrences and 
and metastatic disease. So it can happen and um, it's possible. And then even for some of our other patients, they can still have many years of good quality of life, even with metastatic disease. Yeah. And that's a really great point that you brought up at the, at the end there. And I think reminds me a little bit of our, our prior episode where we spoke with Dr. Weiss and I think it's important to know the numbers, but at the same time, certainly don't want to take away any sort of hope. Um, like you said, there will be some patients who continue to, I don't want to say surprise us, but who beat the odds and are able to, to get past this with treatment. So uh, I think that's important for, for everyone to keep in mind. Um, but that's great. Um, any other thoughts that you'd like to share with us today about viewing sarcoma and your experience taking care of patients with, with this diagnosis? I think it's just, you know, really important to take into consideration each individual patient and each individual situation. And I tell them this too, that what, what surgery might be right for one kid might be not the right option for another kid who has exactly the same MRI and same looking tumor. Um, cause I, I want them to be able to do what they want to do after they're done with treatment. And it's not the same for everybody. Um, and that, you know, people actually do go through this whole process and survive and thrive. And I finally hit the point in my career where some of my very first Ewing sarcoma patients I ever had are now in college. And it's just such a wonderful feeling to see them out at school and doing normal young adult teenager things and not just remember all the tears and all the struggles we went through while they were going through treatment. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to that point as well and having the the same kind of stories to share, but um, definitely appreciate you sharing that. I think that's the part of the job that we all look forward to um, and hope to get to share that experience with all of our patients. But. Yeah, this simply uh, amazing. And, you know, I'm jumping the gun a bit, but our next episode, we will be having an Ewing sarcoma survivor um, on uh, the episode to, to share some of her experience um, with us and with our listeners. Well, I think it's a good time for us to kind of summarize some of the major points that we spoke about in today's episode. Um, so just to highlight things, Ewing sarcoma is a rare tumor that can occur in both the bones and soft tissues. Uh, and it's a small round blue cell tumor, uh, which is has that translocation of 11 and 22. And Dr. Lindbergh gave us a very great way to remember that translocation, remembering this as Patrick Ewing's number when he played for the New York Knicks, the easy does not seem to have a very uh, <laughs> fond remembrance of uh, Patrick Ewing, but we still do find that to be a, a useful tip. I don't think I was born in memory. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm, I'm um, just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, Izu, any other uh, yeah, things so to highlight on today's episode? Absolutely. I think um, chemotherapy really being a staple in the management of this is one that one thing that's important um, in combination with uh, with surgery or any other 
uh, treatments such as radiation if needed, the importance of necrosis of the necrosis rate, uh, as well as uh, having a negative margin resection, I think, are, are the are the other things I would add. Great. Um, well, Dr. Lindbergh, thank you so much for joining us today uh, as a guest on our this episode of Sarcoma Insight. Um, we were really excited to have you and have the chance to speak with you. And thanks for inviting yeah. me. It was a fun chat. Yeah, real real pleasure. Um, you know, and you know, hopefully we can uh, get you back for another episode later on. Um, do any um, additional comments or notes or anything you'd like to share that you tell patients uh, with this diagnosis um, or families um, that you would just like to share before we wrap up the episode? I just think it's always important to remember to take care of an entire patient and not their tumors and take care of an entire family and not just a patient. Those are definitely words to live by in our field. So appreciate that. Well, I'll let Izu do our close. He's our uh, our <laughs> expert speaker. I think I lost my voice at the uh, academy <laughs> meeting. Those lectures, you know. <laughs> Lots of networking. Yeah, a lot of talking. But um, it is important to note that every patient's case is unique and their treatment for uh, each diagnosis is dependent on the discussion with your team of physicians. If you'd like more information, please feel free to check out the link on the episode description. And next episode, we will be um, and we'll have our guest, uh, Brandy Benson, who is a Ewing sarcoma survivor. And we'll be talking about her journey uh, from diagnosis to present with Ewing sarcoma. Uh, thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to subscribe to our podcast and or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sarcoma Inside Podcast. Sarcoma Insight.